Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello and on today's episode of Afternoon Light, I'm talking to Nick Durrenfirth, who is the Executive Director of the John Curtin Research Centre. He's an academic and former Labor speechwriter and advisor and is the author or editor of 12 books. Some are children's books, I understand, which sounds exciting. But today we are talking about the concept of citizenship and it has a Menzies angle here. He spoke a lot about it and there were debates of his era which engaged the concept of citizenship. So welcome, Nick, to Afternoon Light. It's great to have you here in person. I love recording in person. <laughs> it's, it's nice to be here, Georgina. Thank you for having me on. It's nice to be back on campus. Yes. Having taught here at this distinguished uh, institution. And you taught Australian history, which is so important. I and, did. Uh, and yeah. I wish more students would take up Australian history. Yeah, so do I. We did have a very clever and uh, passionate cohort, but I'd, I'd like to see more people actually study. Yes, it's a very small, uh, small, it's come, small it's come cohort. From a niche subject. It is. It is bizarrely. niche. Yeah. Whereas in the past, it was quite quite a mainstream subject to to study. So. Um, well, you and I together on our opposite sides. Oh, yes, a unity ticket, but opposite sides of uh, of the political spectrum, at least. But of course, Curtin and Menzies very, very fond of each other. We have, you might have seen in the exhibition, some lovely letters exchanged between uh, Curtin and Menzies when they were um, one opposition leader, one prime minister, and they had a, a, a lovely friendship and a lovely respect for each other, despite obviously significant political differences and in a time of pretty pretty difficult circumstances, of course, during World War II. So something for politicians in this day and age no, to bear in I mind. I think that's still true today, despite... I think people see this sort of rancour and partisanship, you know, through the debates which are shown in 30-second grabs on television. True. And yeah. it doesn't capture a lot of the bipartisanship and the friendships which are formed across the chamber and, you know, Kurt and Menzies, there are debates about how friendly they were. I think Menzies was actually on friendly terms uh, with Chifley. Yes. Uh, and was very emotional when Chifley, Chifley passed away. And Doc Evert came to Menzies' daughter Heather's wedding. So, you know, it even went beyond Curtin and Chifley. But tell me, Nick, let's get back to the topic at hand, citizenship. Tell me about how Australian citizenship developed as a concept? And that's a big, big question. So <laughs> the abridged version. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like asking how long is a piece of string. Yeah. <laughs> and people have been debating what is citizenship, what defines a citizen since Aristotle, Plato, et cetera, et cetera. I think in Australia the defining aspect of citizenship is its lack of definition. Yeah. Uh, it's mentioned once the Constitution, I'll come to that in a moment. It was not created when we became a federation in 1901. That said, during the 19th century, in the lead-up to federation, and there were federation convention debates in the previous decade, where citizenship you know, actually was explicitly referred to in the, the Constitution. It was removed for the word subject. But they spoke about citizenship. They spoke about what it meant to be a good citizen, 
sort of duties and obligations that you owed to others. But even in 1948, when the Chifley Labor government um, passes the Nationality and Citizenship Act, which has now become the Australian Citizenship Act, um, and was enacted in early 1949, it tells us how an individual might become a citizen or lose that citizenship, but nothing about what that citizenship entails. Um, as I mentioned before, our constitution mentions it once in the now infamous <laughs> section 44, yeah. quote it, in, in regards to, quote, citizens of a foreign power. Yeah. So citizenship really has been this amorphous concept which has been developed through... Um, acts of legislation, constitutional readings by, by the High Court, um, especially common law interpretation, administrative practice. Um, and uh, as I would argue, and I argued a very long time ago in a now archaic journal article, uh, by the way in which politicians and political parties talk about citizenship and, and what you know being a good citizen is all about. You know, even today... If you if you look at the Act, um, there was a preamble inserted to the, into the Act in 1993. No legal consequences attached. And I'll, I'll read it out directly. This is what it tells us about Australian citizenship. It represents formal membership of the community, a common bond involving reciprocal rights and obligations, uniting all Australians while respecting their diversity Persons granted Australian citizenship enjoy these rights and undertake to accept these obligations by pledging loyalty to Australia and its people and by sharing their democratic beliefs and by respecting their rights and liberties and upholding and obeying the laws of Australia. Perhaps the last clause there is about the only sort of clear aspect. You know, what, what does it mean to, to, to have reciprocal rights and obligations? It's not spelt out. Now, whether, whether that's a... I'm, I'm ambivalent about a Bill of Rights. Most English-speaking democracies now have a Bill of Rights. I think it would be tremendously difficult to it would require a change to the Constitution mm. and a ref, obviously a referendum. And as you know, Menzies found out to his displeasure uh, in, in 1951, it requires serious hurdles. Yeah. To get a referendum up. They're yeah. notoriously difficult yeah. um, to get up. And, you know, in terms of a Bill of Rights, you look at the experience of the United States, which has a, a Bill of Rights for an 18th century, isn't it? Bill of Rights. So you're crystallising what are considered inalienable rights at a point in time. And 100 years, 200 years, three, 400 years in time, those rights might seem a little bit anachronistic. The right to bear arms. I mean, we, we look at that as Australians and think, well, that's bonkers. A right to bear arms? I mean, are you in a state of sort of constant civil war, vigilantism? Is it, you know, what about, what about a police force? What about armed services? Can't they be the ones who worry about bearing arms and we just live peacefully? And, and, and all the complexities that flow from that one right that's enumerated in the US Bill of Rights, which will never be changed, I would say, will never, ever be changed. Um, the campaign you can mount against it would be too powerful in the United States context, and so they're stuck with it. Yeah. So, again, when it comes to mounting a campaign to change the Constitution to insert a Bill of Rights in Australia, I think you can easily shoot it down 
because you say, well, how, I mean, you know, what are, what are those rights then? Yeah. And are they just very, a list of very simple and even rights? That, I mean, that's contested yeah. territory. I mean, even the probably the foremost authority on this, T.H. Marshall, who was a sociologist writing in the 1950s, went through the sort of three stages of development of citizenship, civic citizenship, which had kind of been fulfilled by the end of the 18th century, political citizenship, which had largely been filled by the end of the 19th century, and then development of, um, you know, uh, citizenship as an understanding of full participation in the community by mm. granting sort of social and economic rights. Mm. Um, and that's continued to the 21st century, but I mean, I think T.H. Marshall would, would be sort of bamboozled by some of the rights that people <laughs> Claim. are, are claiming these days. Yeah, yeah. So um, just bringing it back to the Australian debate, uh, around citizenship and, and it's really interesting you raised section 44 which of course in 2018 became particularly pertinent because that reference to a foreign power you had quite a few members of parliament who had not renounced citizenship of of Great Britain which of course Australians were part of you know had British citizenship um in the early days and were considered British subjects. So Britain wasn't considered a foreign power back then, but, of course, with the evolution of Australia and its relationship to Britain, that that changed. And then, you know, we found ourselves with, what was it, I think 12 members of parliament who were were there (laughs) against the constitution and I actually ended up running in a by-election against one of those then former oh, members yes. of parliament, yeah, because she had renounced her British citizenship. She tried to, but it hadn't – I think the, the paperwork hadn't been signed on the day the writs were issued, but it was by the time of the election. So there was some sort of rather, you know, semantic issue of timing. But the law's the law, and uh, it may be an ass, but it was the law, and so she had to recontest her seat. She won. Uh, but uh, and and I think they all won, didn't they? All, all yeah. Won, and there was a the particularly nasty case of Frydenberg. Yes. Which sort of yeah we were talking about be- yeah before indeed um, about my my personal circumstances, which led yeah. to a sort of bizarre yeah yeah um, series of uh, email correspondence. That's well, that's right. The peculiarities um, and the tragedy of of history means that some people were rendered stateless and their citizenship and their kind of ancestry became a little bit cloudy, like in the case of Josh Frydenberg exactly. um, and, and your case too. But I think me- there was just, I mean, really in the Frydenberg case, and I sort of was came out sort of publicly in support of Josh, uh, I just, it was, there was a very unsavoury mm. element to, mm. to what was being pursued. Mm. Um, even though, you know, putting aside the letter of the law, it was... His family had just experienced, you know, a monstrous yeah. uh, event, uh, and um, there, there was no need to, to, for that to be pursued. No, through, through the High Court. No, um, no, indeed, indeed, and in the end, he was, of course, found to be a um, a citizen of Australia and only Australia, and not a foreign power. But tell me, so Australian citizenship is really an like grows out of British citizenship. So tell me about what was the point where we became just Australian citizens and not British subjects? There was a – 
wasn't quick, was it? No, it was <laughs> we, very slow. We'd, like, we'd like to think it was a long, long time ago, but it was well within our lifetimes. Wasn't we, it? we were British, yeah. uh, and, and you know, there's a famous phrase, you know, independent Australian Britons. We mm. were um, up until well beyond 1948, really, um, subjects of the Crown, uh, British subjects, not Australian citizens. Well, Australian citizenship was overlaid mm. with subjecthood. And that was largely a bipartisan idea. It then, the, the, I think one of the crucial turning points is, is 1948, although that was subject to debate around its actual real significance and meaning. The Chifley government introduced the Nationality and Citizenship Act of 1948. Why? Well, Canada... And, and Great Britain um, had decided to – well, Great Britain had decided to grant colonies the right to make separate citizenship laws uh, or as dominions. Um, this, and this had kind of flowed through the, the Act of Westminster 1931, which had um, enabled dominions to make laws outside of uh, – the British Empire in terms of defence and foreign affairs in times of war. It's a very sort of complex subject and I don't want to go down that, that rabbit hole. Yeah, sure. The other animating purpose of the Act was um, the Chifley government, uh, and in particular Arthur Corwell, the immigration minister, were planning a mass scheme of, of immigration, which for the first time was not going to be restricted to Britishers. Mm. You know, we're looking at sort of Northern Europe... Then eventually, Southern Europeans, Greeks, you know, it was initially Balts, Germans, Scandinavians. Um, but all under that auspices of white Australia, of course, at that time. So it was a, an expansion of the concept of white Australia from just being British, um, sort of Anglo Irish, to okay, well, we can have continental Europe join, join our population as part of the, the sort of broader conception of the community of, of white people. Is that how that was captured? In part, it certainly had no... There was no intention of getting rid of, of white Australia no. explicitly. It was, it was more done, to, for want of a better word, surreptitiously. Um, there, there was an expansion of what it meant to be white. And this act did not get rid of British subjecthood. It simply overlaid the concept with... Uh, Australian citizenship and indeed Australians could simultaneously be British subjects until 1984. If non-British subjects wanted the right to vote, they had to become uh, naturalised. This, this then turned them into to British subjects, which is you know, why the Act was, was really introduced. This status was then finally removed by the Australian Citizenship Amendment Act of 1984 which led, as I was telling you before, my father to finally take out um, Australian citizenship. He came here uh, with um, uh, um, Holocaust survivors, including my grandmother, uh, ironically as 10-pound poms. They'd become naturalised British citizens. Uh, and he was just a British subject. He was voting yeah. in Australian elections. Uh, he um, attended um, did this... This August uh, institution. Yeah. Uh, so he involved. came out as a young boy then. Yeah. You're a young boy. Yeah. So yeah. 
it's it's a, it's a very strange concept to get your head around that someone is, you know, in Australia for sort of three and a half decades, but not an Australian citizen. But yeah, very much sees himself as Australian because there was no opportunity for him to become a citizen. Was the problem? There was no. Oh, if you were he, British, if you were British citizen, well, just didn't need to. You just didn't need to. So why he could would you have, He could have. Be, yeah. He could have become that. He but if you're an Italian citizen, the Chifley's. Um, 1949 Nationality and Citizenship Act was a sort of lure, wasn't it? You could actually come as an Italian or a Greek or whatever to Australia and become an Australian citizen, yeah. but also a British subject. Yes. <laughs> but uh, Menzies was opposed to this bill, wasn't he? I mean, it passed. and He was. Yeah. He didn't overturn it. No, he did not. I think you need to understand the, uh, the broader context. Uh, it was very much part of his campaign against the Chifley Labor, what he called the socialistic agenda, which yeah. was all augmented by what I think was the foolhardy decision to, to, to attempt to nationalise yes. the banks in 1949. Menzies was essentially arguing that citizenship was an organic um, idea. It was about, it was a moral and civic expression. It was about the ways in which citizens express their independence. It was about virtues, good values, home ownership, which we might talk about a bit later, it was central to his idea of citizenship. He and others thought... So, so just, just to, to reiterate, it was very much conceived of as a moral and organic category, not some kind of sort of bureaucratic status the government should impose. And that very much tied in with the, the, the broader argument that he was making that you know, the Chifley government was uh, um, holding on to many of this kind of wartime restrictions and rationing, which was impeding the, the, what he saw as the, the innate freedoms of Australians. Yeah, it's interesting when you... And he, also, he also... He and others also thought... They argued, I think it was a specious argument, that you know, this was a precursor to the destruction of the British Empire. That's right. I think you, you quote in, in the piece you write that um, he said the bill would sever the crimson thread of kinship and was part of a sinister plan to liquidate the British Empire. It's good, good political rhetoric there. And, of course, you've got an election afoot. <laughs> so the, the debate is absolutely fascinating. You know, there's, yeah. yes, to liquidate the British Empire, there's another Liberal MP, Archie Cameron, who thought, and he's actually quite technically right, he said, quote, to be an Australian citizen seems to me utterly ridiculous. It is a contradiction in terms. There is no such person as an Australian citizen. <laughs> Did that resonate? Uh, no. No. There's no, no. Ma- there's no, no. mass rallies. There's no, no mass movement. No. And Menzies doesn't overturn the legislation. People voted for and against legislation, not necessarily on party lines. So Percy Spender um, voted for legislation. Um, he voted for legislation um, because... Essentially, uh, he said um, that it provided a definition of citizen stripped bare. So no matter how it was acquired, it conferred no special rights on citizens. Whereas you had, on the other side, 
the Labor renegade and former New South Wales Labor Premier Jack Lang voted against the legislation, part out of his animus towards Chifley and Co., but part because he accepted Spender's point. He said, well, why are we introducing an Australian Nationality and Citizenship Act which doesn't actually spell out what citizenship means? Uh, and then he went on to, to argue that we should be adopting a, a Bill of Rights and we should be far more specific about what it means to be a, a citizen uh, in Australia. Uh, he also used um, some spicy language. Um, in, <laughs> I, I have no doubt. Um, Jack Lang would he, use spicy he, language. He, he described the legislation <laughs> as a badge of ridicule and pity. <laughs> <laughs> Was that the first time in Australia we witnessed uh, spicy political rhetoric when it came to debates over citizenship? No, but it's, it's coming back to, to something we, we discussed earlier, that was very interesting. Um, you said we, we didn't have this concept and it's sort of this 48 and then there's more sort of formal changes in 1984, 1986... Uh, and again in in 2007, one of the very interesting, which I found in my research, was women suffragists. Now, women didn't get the the vote federally until 1903. I think Victoria was very laggardly. I think it. I'm just trying to remember the date off my head. It might it might have been another decade. I should remember. A, this. A decade, I know South Australia was first, on, wasn't but, it? <laughs> but when women suffragists spoke um, uh, about citizenship, they didn't speak of desiring to become a citizen uh, and exercising voting rights as a citizen. They presented themselves as we are citizens. Yeah. Um, and 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 they said we we bear all the requisite attributes of a good citizen commitment, belonging, contribution, but they were simply unable to exercise their voting rights as citizens. Um, but really until 1948, um, there isn't that kind of sort of heated, vitriolic um, debate about, about Australians. It was simply taken that we were British subjects. So Menzies comes to power in 1949 and, of course, uh, it's... You know, the beginnings of the Cold War, the Iron Curtains come down, there's um, conflict in Korea, there's a lot of concern about the threat of global communism coming down from Australia's north and, and what that might do to democracy. There was a real sense that democracy was under threat as a way of governing and as a sort of a liberalising force. And then, as you were saying before, Menzies, Menzies conceptualises this sort of um, moral citizen, a, a model Australian is someone who is middle class, they're, they're, they're frugal, they're self-reliant. Thrift. Um, thrift, yeah. exactly. Their life is centred around a, a, ho- a home and a, a nuclear family. They are um, male, male breadwinner. They are the, yeah, the male breadwinner. But, but I, I should say that was the labour view as well. Yeah. Male, yeah. yeah. The, the ideal citizen was a, was a male breadwinner. How does the Menzies view of a of a citizen contrast with the the Labor view? Is the, is there a strong contrast there? We see a sort of a, a division along partisan lines. They both talked about independence, but it, it, Menzies was very much his conception was 
independence from an overly uh, interventionist state. And I think he tapped into the, the zeitgeist there during the late 40s and, and, and 1950s. Um, he, as I said, as, as I mentioned earlier, it's very much a moral and organic conception. For Labor, it certainly was about independence, but it was about economic mm. independence. It was about social justice understood in fairly limited economic terms, um, uh, having a, a wage earner's welfare state where independence was conceived as uh, not freedom from government, but, you know, government allowing them to, 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 to live lives free from want and, you know, and, and, and other undesirable. So you're painting a picture where the, the labour view of a, of a citizen as, is someone who has um, their material concerns dealt with in terms of they have a job, they presumably have enough to survive yep. and live, live okay, whereas Menzies is more idealistic, isn't it? It's about kind of the private aspirations of, of individuals rather than their economic concerns particularly. They are self-reliant enough that they don't have the state to rely on and that sort of self-reliance is considered a virtue of the citizen and they, they value their, their home life and um, their private life as, um, you know, they cherish it, don't they, as good upstanding citizens. Yes, that, that was yeah. a large part of appeal to the forgotten people. Mm. Um, there's still a large crossover. Um, I think both major parties saw citizenship as, you know, fulfilling duties to one's family, to community and, and the nation. I think look, people can cherry-pick Menzies and uh, I know small L liberals and conservatives both like to claim his legacies. Yeah, yeah. There are people like John Howard who say that it, he, he was, you know, the exemplar um, of bringing together the two, the two strands uh, of um, the, the Australian centre-right. Um, it's interesting in The Forgotten People, uh, and I'll, I'll sort of quote here directly, um, Menzies... Menzies says this, and um, there is the emphasis on freedom, independence, you know, the importance of the home and privacy. But he says this um, in 1942, individual enterprise must drive us forward. That does not mean we are to return to the old and selfish notion of laissez-faire. So he was not some kind of... um, uh, let, it, let it rip. No, free you market. Know, he would have yeah. probably, he might, may have fainted um, at policies of Thatcher and, and Reagan and, and others. But he goes on to say the functions of the state will be much more than merely keeping the ring within which the competition will fight. Our social industrial laws will be increased. There will be more law, not less. More control, not less. And then I, you know, in my research, I look to some of his speeches in Parliament. Again, he's reading the zeitgeist. He yeah. understands that Australians during the war have accepted a greater role for government. In 1944, he addresses Parliament and he, he announces that 
I'll quote him directly again. Whatever political party sits on the Treasury bench, that is, forms government, it must be prepared to find for the ordinary citizen every scrap of social security that can be brought to him. But that social security will mean nothing more than a false standard of living unless there is progress Mm. in Australia. So he's subtly differentiating himself what the Labor government is proposing. And it's certainly, you know, it's obviously prosecuting the war at that point. Yeah. But has has well-developed post-war reconstruction ideas, many of which Menzies... uh, much of my research citizenship was, was carried a long time ago. I'll be more generous to Menzies these days. I mean, he really does continue along with post-war reconstruction. The 50s and 60s, there are some Labor people or so-called progressives who, who think it's this age of sort of sterile materialism and, um, you know, white, white picket fence Australia. But under Menzies, un- unemployment never rose above... Three percent. There was inflationary problems in 1961, which nearly threw him lose office. The, the, wages you, were increasing. Wages increased. Your but, disposable you know, income. Disposable it, yeah, in, went up. Disposable yeah. income. Uh, disposable incomes were. Unionism was was going gangbusters. Um, Australia, you know, um, manufacturing boomed. We had a car industry. We had the Stony Mountains. Um, uh, I often speak to my mum, dad about this. That you know, they talk about growing up in the fifties. Particularly, my mum who lived, lived in regional Australia. Um, they didn't have a fridge mm. initially. They had an ice no. box. Yeah, and there was a milkman who kind of delivered the milk. She <laughs> she regularly tries to to remind me just how much Australia has changed. A lot of that change did actually um, happen. Uh, um, uh, under Menzies, and, and the other thing in terms of my parents um, is, and I'll I'll probably get in trouble with my Labor friends here, but um, one of one of the Labor mythologies is that um, working class and poor people only got to, to university when Gough Whitlam yeah uh, made, made unis free made unis yeah. free. <laughs> now that's that's wrong. Yes, because. Well, my, we know that here at the Robert Menzies Institute, and we talk about this a lot. Yes, but <laughs> my, my my parents came from, from working class and, and very poor um, backgrounds. They both attended the University of Melbourne. Uh, how did they get here? They got here on uh, on a scheme enacted by Menzies bonded teacher scholarships, which I think is a great idea. Um, which is at John Curtin Research Centre, we've advocated for that. Um, Anthony Albanese, during the last election, uh, advocated for a limited scheme of uh, bonded scholarship. I think it's a brilliant idea. You have you have the best of the the cream of the working class who get to go to university, um, which is a privilege, but then give back. Yeah, you know, they're they're you know, teaching in state schools, so they're passing on their knowledge mm. and wisdom. Mm. You know, obviously, high-caliber, academically performing uh, students and then teachers yeah. to the next generation. I mean, I think it's a fabulous idea, yeah. and I'm sorry it, it went by the wayside. Well, it you know, there's opportunities for uh, for revival, as you know, Nick. Um, 
it, and it, and it's so true. So during the Menzies era, forty nine to sixty six, you had a tripling of um, students attending Australian universities. The number of Australian universities went from, I think it was eight to to sixteen during that period too. So this was a an expansion of opportunity, not just to create a more educated workforce or um, you know for just purely nation building vocational reasons they were really important of course science and technology really important at that time too but because Menzies believed in an educated population being critical to our democracy and our citizenry of course that we were then able to contribute more fulsomely with public debates with democratic life and culture and that that just was in its inherently a good thing rather than just churning out student to fulfill a vocation and I think there's a lot a lot in that that's been lost in contemporary debates about education and, and higher ed particularly. I think we're on a unity ticket there as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think that I've, again I've made the unpopular argument that I think um, we should have more um, kids attending uh, TAFE and vocational education rather than being churned through our universities where off they acquire a degree which doesn't match the reality of the the, the, the job market mm. um, and Menzies was as you, as you know was a huge supporter of higher education mm. um, he pushed Commonwealth's involvement in tertiary education probably more than any other Prime Minister up till, up till that date Chifley obviously establishes the ANU in Canberra and again Menzies is big on developing um, Canberra and uh, that, that flows out of Menzies and, and his parents uh, um, instilling in him and his, I think he had six siblings. He had um, two brothers and a sister. Two brothers and sister. Yeah, Frank and Les and Bell. Yeah. I thought it was more than that. Uh, but, but they were all instilled, I mean, he, he was obviously, you know, he won scholarships. Yeah, exceptional student. Yeah, but that yeah. was drilled into them. You mm. know, his dad was a storekeeper. Um, it was drilled into them that education was was vitally important. He was very well read. Looking at your, your marvelous museum here, you can, you can see mm. a very old edition of John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, yeah, which clearly influences him uh, and his thinking, and and he applies that. I think the Australian context with the the, the wonderful phrase that I, that I've used. Um, he talks about the sturdy independence. Uh, of the middle class um, uh, as being the backbone uh, of, of the nation. But he's clearly very well read. Um, I'm riffing off another um, historian here, but he's probably the most, between uh, the time of Alfred Deakin, um, who was uh, a smaller liberal or protectionist and then was co-founder of one of the first iterations of the Liberal Party, uh, and Gough Whitlam, I, I would I would argue that, that Menzies was probably the most well-read of our Prime Ministers during that long period between sort of fed, the Federation decade where Deakin is the dominant federal politician of, of the age and, and the 1970s with, with Gough's ascension as Gough um, drags Australia into the 1960s. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> Again, uh, a point of contention. But tell me, I did want to ask you about um, 
Menzies' appeal to women. So the way Menzies is uh, conceptualising this sort of ideal Australian citizen or the the Australian citizen, uh, he obviously has his forgotten people speech where he really couches it in terms of the middle class. Um, These are people who are overlooked. They are not part of organised labour, but they're also not part of the sort of elite of society, well-connected, well-off. They're just the middle of the road Aussies. Uh, there is an appeal to women here that Labor misses out on as it as it conceptualises. You know, it's a lot of its language is about working when women are not in the workforce, and that represents uh, an opportunity for Menzies, doesn't it, to appeal to some of the issues and the values that women are thinking about, and of course they're vote, they're voting, um, which is which is so important when you're wanting to win elections. Exactly. You, you raise, I mean, in part this is the product of its times. The workforce was male-dominated. Women had entered the workforce during World War II mm. to plug the gaps um, that had been left by servicemen who'd, who'd served overseas. Um, but the expectation after the war was that they would return to the home uh, yeah. to, to raise children mm. um, and look after the family affairs and and, and, and run the home. Um, but the the nature of the labour movement uh, around the time of Menzies, it's highly blue-collar, the, the unions were very highly industrialised, um, you know, hyper, very, 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 very masculine. Yeah. These, these weren't places where, you know, Unions have changed now. You'll now look at blue-collar unions and you'll have senior leadership positions occupied by women. That just wasn't the case during the day. No. And that was tying in with, with the threat of communism around the, from the late 40s, early to mid-50s onwards. Um, uh, Menzies did very much tap into that zeitgeist that, you know, um, this was a very... You know, male-dominated party, which does not represent your interests, and there are specific policies. Um, and I've said that, again, I, I had a look at a pamphlet out there. Specific policies like, like child endowment, yeah, like increasing child endowment um, payments, um, which specifically tailored to not not just middle-class women, but also aspirational. Working people mm. who, who wanted to get ahead, and I, I guess the final sort of concrete policy and ambition and rhetoric that he'd been building since 1942 um, was this emphasis on the sanctity of the home. Yeah, he talks about homes material, homes human, home spiritual, home spiritual. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that tight tapped to the zeitgeist, you know, Australian women, you know, they'd lost brothers, husbands, or they'd been serving overseas. There was a great desire for stability and security and the home very much, not just rhetorically, but materially encapsulated that desire. Whether you give Menzies direct credit for this, but the fact is, Home ownership rose from I think it was about about forty percent to to over seventy percent. Yeah, incredible during, increase during that the, his his what I call his second coming between nineteen forty nine and nine 
1966. We won't talk about the first 1939 <laughs> to 41. Very, um, that was uh, a turbulent time for for Menzies and and for the centre right. But that emphasis on on home ownership is one of I think the the less appreciated legacies of the Menzies era that that you saw an enormous increase in the number of Australians owning their own home. And as Menzies said back then, um, if you don't give people you know, their own home that they will want to you know, protect, how can you then expect them to fight and protect their own nation? There needs to be that sense of ownership, of your, you know, your private ownership of a piece of land, a piece of Australia that invests you in the country and gives you the confidence to give back through children, through through private enterprise. I mean, this was all a nation building project, but it was attractive both to men and women. It had and and across the across the divide across of of yeah. education and and levels of you know socio economic state state. Yeah. So it's a, a, it was cross class appeal, and again, this was one of his great points of differentiation, and, and being one of the the Liberal Party's great points of differentiation with the ALP historically probably not over the last two decades, uh, was that Australia was a classless society, that it was wrong to divide people into neatly into working class or middle class or Mm. or upper middle class or ruling class um, uh, uh, stratum. Yeah, so so Nick, before we finish, and I know we had lots lots of aspirations well, to get about through, yeah. for <laughs> but I did want to talk to you about um, his attempt to ban the Communist Party, and this is a, a sort of longish term project, and and ultimately the High Court took a different view, and of course the Australian people took a different view about whether the law should allow co- people to be members of the Communist Party or not, but. Menzies did want to ban the Communist Party. Did this show in the limits of of citizenship? And I and I wonder here too whether there's a contemporary context when it comes to the foreign interference bill um, with um, the threat of of uh, other other governments trying to interfere in some of our domestic affairs. I mean, particularly over the interference of of Chinese operatives here or CCP operatives here in Australia. There's, there seems to be a bit of um, repetition of history here when it comes to <laughs> governments trying to stop nefarious influences on our citizenry. In short, yeah, to answer your question directly, uh, yes, it did illustrate the, the limitations because we just, despite the Nationality and Citizenship Act of 1948, the rights to citizenship hadn't been spelt out. No. Um, Menzies goes to the 1949 election, explicitly promising to to ban, to dissolve the Communist Party. He gets in a landslide. In April 1950, he introduces legislation which seeks to outlaw the, the CPA. Um, where it becomes problematic, and, and, it, and it's, it's a contradiction here with his commitment to, to individual liberty, is um, it also targeted individual members... So it threatened them with the loss of rights, including freedom of expression and opinion, aspects of personal liberty. They were barred from employment in the Commonwealth Public Service and trade unions. Um, and, and, and most critically, um, 
uh, it reversed the the onus of proof, the, the burden of proof, which was you know the linchpin of of British justice, which mm. Benzies was very well acquainted with. This mm. is a man who obviously was a lawyer, a barrister, and took silk. Um, and and ironically, when it, the, the High Court strikes down the legislation, but only on a technicality, it says Australia was not in a state of wartime. So it says you can't use the uh, um, defence powers uh, section of the, the Constitution to enact this legislation. So Menzies then goes to alter the Constitution via referendum 951, which is a very turbulent affair. And ironically, um, Doc Evatt, H.V. Evatt, who had formerly sat on the High Court, um, who's his Labor leader now after Chifley's um, death. Labor initially passes legis- the first reading of the legislation, by the way, before the High Court strikes it down, and then backflips um, be- because the burden of proof and this idea that um, communists could be sort of named and they would have to prove that they weren't a communist. Mm. You know, there are echoes of this in mm. in America and, and and what becomes known as McCarthyism. Mm. Um, and it's actually Evett who argues that um, he doesn't argue the case for communism, that the, the mainstream of the Labor Party is militantly anti-communist. It then splits over this issue a few years later. Evett doesn't particularly handle the situation well. No, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> um, but Evett actually said it, one of I was reading through all the pamphlets. They issued all these pamphlets, and, and he, Evett is actually saying it's offensive to British notions of justice. Mm. It's, 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 so it's really interesting. So it kind of throws back, throws back at Menzies many of the sort of central ideas and values that, that Menzies would have Menzies held, held, cent, held central. But, but Menzies is obviously very concerned about the threat from outside, right? The, th- the, threat, sure. the threat of global communism from outside Australia to, to the, the functioning of Australia as a liberal democratic society and that, that idea that if you're a communist, you or a member of the Communist Party of Australia, you you are disloyal to Australia. You you know you're subversive. You're you're wanting to bring down our whole way of life, our whole system of government. I, I wonder if you could comment on the echoes of that. Of course, we had a few years ago with with ISIS. So we had Australian citizens going to Syria um, to fight for Islamic State. They had their citizenships cancelled. Um, rightly, by, too, rightly by so. um, the Australian government, that was fine under the law. The government was able to do that. I don't, I don't understand that there was any um, successful challenges to the legality of the Australian government's decision in cancelling the citizenship of these people. That has become and problematic in terms of their children. Of their children, exactly. But this sort of idea that if you're, if you're, if you're treasonous, you're uh, engaged in activities that are supporting the other the threat from outside that you are not a citizen or you should be disqualified from citizenship um, is, um, you know, it's an interesting one because there's lots of people in Australia who do really bad things that are against the interests of the state of society. We don't disqualify them, their citizenship. So 
So this is this is where we advocate, sort of pick and choose. This we? is where advocates for of a bill of rights would say well, mm. this is why we need one. Mm. We need to explicitly set up boundaries around what is acceptable and unacceptable mm. uh, conduct as an Australian citizen. Mm. I mean, some people, you know, on the the hard left of the Labor movement, um, I think rather it's a bit more complex and I think the charge was a bit unfair. I've termed um, Menzies pig iron Bob for a while because of what was actually a one-off shipment of uh, iron ore exports to Japan Mm. um, who would later later become a direct enemy of Australia and they sort of regarded that um, with a bit of a fair, fair dose of hyperbole. Uh, as, as sort of treacherous, not it actually had nothing to do with Menzies. <laughs> they, they would regard that, you know, kind of sending off uh, materials which could later be used against Australian Australian troops and even Australian homeland. And I think the I think the counter argument to that at the time was that the Australian industry was in desperate need of of income yep. from Japan. Um, in order to prepare for war, and so if we weren't exporting, then we couldn't couldn't fund our war our preparations for war. Uh, and um, there was, you know, the danger of companies like BHP at the time going bust without this sort of income. So, yeah, it was a difficult decision. But Menzies was pretty brave. Went out there to Port Kembla, didn't he, and confronted the the dock workers and the who were supposed to be loading the iron ore onto the ship and you know, he did that. I assume there was a certain level of personal risk in doing that and uh, and he did that. It wouldn't and there's happen, photographs it, it now. It wouldn't happen today. No, no, no. No. I mean, it was – I mean, Menzies did that. I mean, I, there are – when Deacon – I sp- spoke about Alfred Deacon before. He turned up to a to a rally in the Inner West, which had been – which had actually been a bastion of smaller liberal protectionism – uh, and and gave an address, and it and was heckled, and it was very very rowdy. Um, but there was no sense that there was a physical threat to politicians. Where I don't think we can take that for granted. No, in, well, in and you look longer. at a very peaceful country uh, like Japan, which has almost no gun crime, and you see what happened to, Shinzo to poor Abe. Shinzo Abe the other day. You can't take. Anything for granted. Um, Nick, I have so many other things I want to ask you about, um, you know, not least um, the the legacy of the forgotten people in the <laughs> Howard Battlers, Tony's Tradies and Quiet Australians, but for another day, I think. Um, it's been lovely to chat with you, Nick Durham, first. Thank you so much for your time today uh, coming on Afternoon Light. It's been wonderful to join you. Thank you. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you. Thank you.